Oh, did you like, did you like how it was episode uh, 14, so I called it uh, episode 14.88? Nice. Did anybody see that me trolling you? I did, I did not what see it. All right, cool. Huh? What does that mean? 14.88? You're so lucky that you're ignorant of these wow. things. Is it a Nazi the, thing? Yeah. I feel like it's is Nazi. It a Nazi thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I feel like most secret numbers are a Nazi thing <laughs> that you know about that I don't. Most, no, just most secret numbers in general. Like Numerology any, is like basically it fat. It's, it's structurally fascist. Wow, don't tell that to <laughs> Debbie, <very> man. True. <laughs> right? Wasn't so, one of the first Superman comics like revealing all the fucking inane, idiotic, childish codes the clan had and just like, embarrassed oh, the, the shit. Oh, it was like Dungeons and Dragons shit. Yeah, that, yeah, it was just like the, the first one like revealed how dumb all the clan's like names for themselves are and just embarrassed the shit out of everyone associated with it. That's pretty cool. I, I feel like I, this is somewhere in, in Cavalier and Clyde. What are the names? You know, like calling themselves Grand Wizards and shit. That uh, was all are, out of the, the open. Their ranks are all like Dungeons and Dragons. It's like Grand Wizard, like... Grand uh, Imperial small Dragon. Orc. Yeah, yeah, Grand Small Orc. <laughs> yeah, medium-sized <laughs> Goblin. How like, much... Uh, helpful uh, Dwarf. How, how many Constitution points does our Grand Wizard have? <laughs> Chinless Incel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's redundant. <laughs> Fedora, Neckbeard. That's most of them. Yeah, so uh, let's start the show. No, do I don't want to do a show. No? No, I, actually, I just kind we of are, find that. We are recording. Making a show Wait, is there an actually are goblins. Production. It's literally, they have grand giants, and uh, every province is supervised by a grand giant assisted by four goblins. Oh, are you talking this, about the KKK? Yeah, this is real. Wait, they they have goblins? Yes, they have goblins. I They're thought I made assistants. that up. No. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> I feel like goblins would be what they would call um, people of a tribe or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's golems. Have... Golems. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. different. Get it right. <laughs> well, I I trolled you by calling it episode uh, 14.88. And so you should know that that is a right, no, not even a right wing, straight up fascist thing. The 14 is the 14 words. And 88, uh, H being the eighth letter of the alphabet, eight. Right, you know where Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. There you did, go. did you see that tweet from like that was like an official uh, what like uh, immigration authority tweet mm-hmm. that was literally like the fourteen words? Yeah, yeah. that was. <sighs> yeah, it was more or less. Is that sentiment? Is, is that like an accident? That's not ominous at all. No, no. I like roll my not. eyes at like oh like look, the secret fascist message of Trump. Like no, that's uh, yeah. Those well, are the right moments there. like I think the most innocent explanation that you can give it is that standard right wing discourse has gotten so far in that direction that they can almost exactly paired a Nazi without even meaning to do it. No, it was and if they meant to do totally it, it's that much purpose. fucking worse. But either yeah, way, it's it fucking like appalling. Some, some social media intern who reads, like, you know, farther right shit than his official job. Oh, yeah. Thought he was I doing a clever so dog whistle. I time being uh, afraid for other people, right? I'm afraid for immigrants. I'm afraid for people of color. I'm afraid for the economic underclass. But every once in a while, I'm like, ooh, should I be afraid for myself, too? Maybe. Well, I'm... It's like the inverse of that uh, when they came for... Uh, yeah. yeah, first they came for the... Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, yeah, I, 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 could, uh, I could be denaturalized. Uh, you know, that's the thing. All right, let's start the show. First they came for the ICE officers, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't an ICE officer. <laughs> Next they came for the Department of Homeland Security, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't part of that. Next they came for the cops, and I didn't say anything. Then and they then... came for the billionaires. Yeah. I kept not saying anything because I didn't want to draw my attention to myself coming for all these people. <laughs> <laughs> the Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hellwind. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. 
Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the fashion of global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. Hello and welcome to the Antifada. Uh, we are broadcasting not live from Leftist Best headquarters, about a half hour walk away from the gentrification ravaged Gowanus Canal in the coastal elite bubble of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we are here with not one but two guests today. Double trouble. Um, our first is a, he is our second ever second time guest. He was on episode two, right back at the very beginning, our friend Neeral Shah. Say hello. Hi, everybody. And our uh, first time guest here uh, is our friend Alex Gendler. And uh, I like barely even know you. So like maybe you want to say hi and explain a little bit about who you are. Yeah. Hey, what's up? Um, explain myself. It's, explain uh, yourself. Yeah, it's, Justify uh, yourself. And don't forget to talk into the mic. I, who, is your fa- <laughs> who is your father and what does he do? Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm a Soviet agent. Um, yes. And uh, yeah. And other than that, I'm a freelance writer. I live in Brooklyn, just like all you all. So yeah. bot or Hi. not. Um, I guess you guys can do like a touring test on me during the show. And we'll, <laughs> that will be part uh, of it. That's two shows in a row where touring test came up. So got to get some new material. <laughs> somebody, or it's just an increasingly important that. concern. Yeah, that's true. Somebody reposted uh, what I said the other day. The on, 14 uh, words? On a left book group. No, the other thing that I said. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, about how a lot of people on the left probably wouldn't pass the Turing test. Yes. I mean, that's hyperbole, but like some. We all know. You know who you are. Or maybe you don't, and that's the problem. Anyway. <laughs> well, bots don't have self-knowledge, so. True. Well, they not did yet. Uh, there were 12 Russians indicted recently. That wasn't you. You're not out on bond, are you? Um, no comment. Oh, shit. Damn. Mm-hmm. Our infosec sucks. <laughs> Gotta get better at that. Come on, millennials. All right, get let's together. start over. His name is Igor uh, Grigovich. Yeah. And not a bot. Yep. So, so um, I would like to start by asking our guests a question that we ask on every episode of the Antifada. I Ooh, think you know what it is by I, now. Can I ask it? This? I've got a special way to ask it this time. Go ahead, babe. Well... We've been accused of a lot of things, and one of the things we've been accused of is being postmodern neo-Marxists. Uh, we're trying to basically, you know, through the media uh, and through colleges, through academia, we're trying to destroy the individual in favor of the collective. Now, wait, who accused you of this? Was it Borden Peterson? Yeah, that guy. You know him, too. There's, someone should indict his ass, send him back to where he came from. But yeah, because of that, I feel like it's unfair if we have two guests for them to individually answer, you know, what their hate is. And in true capitalist fashion, I think they should maybe negotiate like a number between them and like come to some sort of conclusion. Wait, as a sidebar, like how good would it be if like the one silver lining of all this ice bullshit was that Jordan Peterson got deported back to Canada? Fuck. Yeah. I mean, it's that, not going to happen. Right before but... you abolish them, send them back and then, okay, they've done that's, enough. That's as their final act. Like it's not going to redeem them. But they you still know. get the gulag. But yeah, it'll be so- it'll be something. Well, they- I, think, I think their final act, and you know, I don't I don't get behind Mitt Romney policies often, but self deportation is <laughs> always an option. That's true. So- sorry, babe, I interrupted go, your flow. Go, go back to Nassau County. Um, no, I, I was I, I want the two of you guys to come collectively uh, to a uh, level of hate. I'd say between one and I'd say one and ten, but that's not fair because there's a lot of gradations. So where would you guys be together, Neil and Alex? Uh, on a hate scale of 1 to 100. Hate towards... Just purity of hate. 
How um, pure is your hate today? Did I stutter? Well, no, somewhere around stuff. 88. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if his is at 14, we're in trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> come on, guys. This is, a game. This is, a, this is a, the free market at work here. Right? Let's come to a number. So you got 88 over here. I'd say my hate these days is a pure 96. <sighs> so could you guys compromise? Yeah, like a, like a B plus. Yeah. Oh. Like A minus, right? We'll take like 89.5 hate as long as it gets rounded up to an A. All right, yeah. You got it. Works. Well, we'll see how the episode pans out before we grade you. But, uh, yeah, that's that was, respectable. That was a good uh, collective enterprise there. We really destroyed the individual in both of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, we are recording this on a Monday because we were supposed to record on Sunday, but somebody went a little too hard on his birthday. Who could that have been? Mm, I don't know. Um, wait, did I just dox you? <laughs> yeah, slightly. That's Someone right. went a little too hard at his birthday party, which may or may not have been on his actual birthday. And I may or may not still be hungover from when that happened, uh, you know, those days ago. Well, yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that. Getting older. That's that's what happens. Well, Happy birthday. Here's a three-day-long hangover. Alex <laughs> was there, and not only was he there, but he was there till the end of the night. He Indeed. was one of the bar closers. There was, what did we get down to, like five at the end of the night? Yeah, well, people came in and out throughout, um, but we met up with some people first at the one bar that we like to hang out at that I won't say the name of, mm-hmm. and then and then next at the other bar that we like to hang out at that I also won't say the name of, and that bar comes with certain people attached to it, mm-hmm. and we hung out with them, and it was uh, very nice. What I liked was that um, you had people who were um, bad faith, ultra-leftist uh, armchair radicals like Alex. Uh, who were at this bar, and uh, Jamie set it up so that it was also uh, it also coincided with a DSA uh, new members welcoming event. Mm-hmm. So she was basically trying to like uh, get this left deviationist to uh, mm. to join the, the party. Careful, babe. I've already been accused of being an ISO wrecker once this week. Can't get it from you too. Well, that was last week, so this is the first time this week. Oh, right, right. So, well, Alex, did do you feel like maybe you were one step closer to? Uh, to you the know. edge, and I'm about to break. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for finishing my sentence. <laughs> it was a nice event, though. Uh, a lot of new members came by at the new member social, and they talked to us. They talked to each other, which is always what we want to see. Like, I really like the idea of having like this class of 2018 that comes the in together. The DSA class of 2018 they, is they, the beginning of their class consciousness. Exactly. Right. They help each other. They figure it out. They read the pamphlets. It's great. Does it's going to be great. Does that mean four years till the revolution? slash graduation or something from your mouth to god's ears who would be like the dean that they pr- play pranks on and stuff oh. Ooh, that's tough bernie sanders michael, <laughs> michael harrington's corpse or uh, <laughs> whoa we're playing weekend at bernie's slash uh, weekend at harrington's class of 18 <laughs> so, good. so um despite sean's hangover i managed to have a lot of fun yesterday um, I was a bit hungover myself, but I was um, uh, praying to the porcelain god. I was kneeling before this throne yeah. all which, day, which I knew was serious because Sean has thrown up like five times since I met him. I have probably the strongest uh, drinking stomach, maybe the strongest drinking constitution. Of, Had. Uh, yes, I was gonna, <laughs> that's actually very good to qualify that. Up until yesterday, I used to have the best, but uh, maybe I hit this this magical age, which I will not name. And it's all downhill. And I'm mm-hmm. going to be like a three-beer loser. Well. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? I don't, you know. Well, yeah. that's, yes, it's very good. Very a no-boozer loser. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's good. Uh, so despite Sean's hangover. Like, Sorry to anybody in AA out there. Uh, Nero hates you. Uh, 
Our friends got these. <laughs> he just saying. put his. He just shrugged and. He's put not it saying in. shit. Sorry. It's good. Keep it. Keep very, it close. I'm very keep proud of all secret. my sober friends, actually. Yes, as, a, as am I. Shout out to sober friends. I'm sorry we hang out at bars so much. We'll try to have some dry events for you somewhere down the line. But there's no like coffee shops open until 4 a.m. Are there? Diners. Well, that's where the Kava Bar Diners. comes in. Yeah, that's true. That's why New we New Jersey like the Kava Pride. Bar. Right, yeah. Long Island Pride. That's yeah. why we're helping to organize the Kava Bar, which is still ongoing, by the way. It's like, just just let them have a union. Jesus Christ, there's like seven people who work there, and they all want to have a union, like really fucking badly. Just don't be an asshole. But anyway, so our friend gave us uh, these magical passes to get into the David Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum on the last weekend of the museum exhibit. And... I thought it would be really nice to bring Sean there for his birthday because he loves Bowie. Huge Bowie fan. Have been for many, many years. And uh, I mean, I like Bowie too, but not the way that Sean does. And I knew, I knew this wasn't going to happen. I was like, oh, if we wait till Sunday, we're just not going to go. And then he was way, way, way too hungover. So let me say this about that. Um, It is true. I screwed the pooch on that. It would have been great. I'm very uh, excited to hear about the exhibition that you went to at the museum. However, I'm probably the only person in this room who has been seeing him in the flesh and been within inches of David Bowie. Tell us about it. Wait, how many inches? Uh, He's got about six and a half. (laughs) Well, he did anyways. Um, (laughs) Too soon. Damn, I went there again. Yeah, no, I... uh, God, can I tell this whole story? Let me pause for a second. I'm not sure if I can tell this. Andy, hold on. You can do it. You can do it, babe. I believe in you. I'm just trying to think of what I should leave in and take out based on what happened. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'd say maybe, God, 15 years ago or so, uh, Moby was uh, headlining a tour. and Who? <laughs> exactly. Boo, Moby. And at that point... Negative shout-out to Moby. <laughs> negative shout-out with your tea rooms and shit. Uh, yeah, Moby was actually headlining above David Bowie at this failure of a tour that they had. And uh, we were... toured with Moby? Believe it or not. Jesus Christ, I didn't know that. Well, fortunately at that time, you know, I didn't really care about Moby, but uh, we had a mutual friend. She was a very um, attractive young stripper. And uh, Moby happened to be a huge fan of attractive young strippers at that time. You don't say. And uh, Moby uh, gave us four backstage passes to his show. And uh, we hung out with Moby for a while, which was really nice. Uh, but David, I was just kidding before. I have nothing against Moby. If you're listening, Moby, I'm sorry. Oh, I do. Check the link I just sent you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. oh, shit. All right. Things are heating up. But yeah, so I, you know, you could see David Bowie's dressing room. You know, it said like David Bowie on it, but there was a phalanx of guards. So I was standing in the hallway, and finally, as Bowie was going out to perform, his entire entourage came past. Wait, were the guards like dressed flamboyantly in any way were they like they had kimonos yes they yeah you could you could just imagine it It was like uh some zoolander shit or something but um at any rate according to my friends as david bowie walked by he gave me a look and he gave me a smile and they said he gave me sex eyes i made eye contact with the man i did not say anything to him but he could tell i was in awe and i like to think that somewhere in david bowie was still that crazy wild bisexual from the 1970s you know who maybe wanted to get six inches from me or closer yeah i mean that you were quite a tasty little twink back then so uh, so sweet of you to put it past him so you guys went to an exhibit so that's something yeah, well, we did. Once once we realized that uh, you guys weren't using the tickets, everyone was kind of on me to take advantage of this opportunity. And I thought, 
if I can convince Jamie to go, then I don't have to do the podcast because I said I would, but I'm hungover and I'm too dumb. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts oh. exactly. But a here trick. I am. Here he I thinks am. a trick you have played on me. It was it was pretty incredible though. Um, you know, my my attention was taken up largely by the first like two panels of this like nine room exhibit, where for no particular reason they just mentioned uh, the construction of post war socialism in oh. Britain, which is one of my favorite things in the world. Oh, there you go. You know, completely ravaged, impoverished country that decides they're just going to eradicate squalor, want, homelessness. Ignorance, you know, all of it. Um, Except for bad teeth. Yeah, well, you know, the five great evils, and then <laughs> the one minor evil maybe they get to well, later. Cosmetic, dentistry is bourgeois. So, oh, okay. Um, you heard it here first, folks. Right. Before Any... capitalism invented Invisalign, actually, the more crooked your teeth, the more interesting your personality, is <laughs> what people that thought. Well, David Bowie was had quite the personality then, because he definitely had British teeth, but I'm he sorry. a bit no. of a snaggle. You know, he, he would have been too perfect otherwise. That's one true. thing I one one of my many takeaways from this was that David Bowie was really hot. Yeah, he also had two different colored eyes, uh, but that's because he got whacked in the head when he was a kid. Really? Yeah, yeah. I um, did not catch that. See, that's what ADD does to you. I, did not I don't catch think that was in the exhibit. But did you guys? Did exhibit. you guys see? Because uh, I went a couple of weeks ago. Did you guys uh, see the little cocaine spill? <gasps> we, we did. We did heard about it. We didn't oh, find it on our first pass. It was wow. right. Oh man. Yeah, I, I, I took two additional passes through the whole exhibit just to find it. I had heard <laughs> that the coke spoon was there, and I very much wanted to see it for some stupid fucking reason, and. It was there. It was in. I mean, the exhibit isn't going anymore, so this won't be like servicey advice. But it was in the big room with uh, the big giant screen with all the concert footage, yep. and everyone takes their headphones off, and the music is loud and awesome. And it, there it is, just shining like a beacon in the night. The spoon that, the very spoon that carried the cocaine <laughs> up Bowie Schnapps. What, what I really loved was the most insane period of his life like the uh the little caption that came along with it like whatever museum intern you know they i imagine they had they were like struggling to find something like appropriate to write about it and the way it was phrased was really funny because it was it said something like although david bowie's cocaine use increased drastically this did not affect his creative output why would you like do you know how no. cocaine works right. but, but, but of course like you know the berlin period is like him like off cocaine and like three records of like right. cultural output that are like and horribly disturbing and yeah, great peak cocaine yeah. period by the way is 19 unfinished movie scripts right. and like david bowie's plan to invent the electric car or something <laughs> Elon Musk of his day. Oh my god! I think it actually said, although his cocaine use negatively impacted his health, it did uh, not right. impact his creative output. Have like, you, uh, yes, yes, that was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the quality was actually pretty good, but as Nero pointed out, they did display it next to some of the dumbest ideas he's ever had. Oh, well, <laughs> like there somebody was, had a brain when doing that there exhibit. Were, there, there were all these That's... notes that he was writing that, like, I guess it was plans for a stage show, but it also seemed like plans for a factory that he was going to destroy every night <laughs> and the note said like they never carried this out because it would have been too expensive <laughs> oh man coke ideas are awesome <laughs> everyone comes up with such great coke ideas did Hell you guys <laughs> did you guys ever see uh, uh cracked actor the from i think it's like 74 or something like that 75 no it's like uh, i believe it's the one it's like a it's a documentary slash like concert film 
and it is um it's peak cocaine bowie and the guy is like real thin like he was always thin but he was like real thin super pale and uh you just see footage of him and he's got a lot of ideas you know all the time and he's got a case of the sniffles but uh the amazing like, most of the ideas were still good that's no, the crazy bowie. thing about bowie like, but the whether... wild, the wild thing that that comes out of that movie is that apparently for like years he just survived off of milk and peppers. That's like the worst combination what? of food I can think of. Yeah. That's very close to my actual diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, milk is how you neutralize like something after you're eating something too spicy, right? So yeah, like, I'm a lactose. He was all about so balance, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's, it's just uh, ghost pepper sauce. And, yeah, he's uh, just <laughs> punishing himself further when he drinks milk. Yeah. It's true. He has a spicy palate. And then mm. after, oh my God, after the Bowie exhibit, once we figured out we weren't going to do a podcast, we went to go see Sorry to Bother You. Well, wasn't there an issue with, um, before you get to that, uh, some sort of cultural appropriation you were referring uh, yeah. to? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as I went through the exhibit, I was sort of thinking thoughts about it in my head and what I, I might want to talk about it and talk about in the podcast. And one of the things I noticed was like, yeah, he pulled from a lot of different places for inspiration. Some of those places were non-Western cultures. And he was especially into Japanese garments like kimonos. And there was this Japanese designer that he did a lot of collaborations with on like really cool outfits. His very first band was really a, a blues band. And this is like, I don't know, the late 60s. It's not that far from the idea of a white musician doing this at all being almost a direct taking if cultural appropriation ever is you know a valid claim not to give away how i feel about it but uh (laughs) when it's when it's closer to the theft you know you think it's more quote-unquote problematic all the way through the late 70s where they have a video of him doing uh fame on if not soul train then it was yeah yeah something like like that and i think I don't know. Today, would that would that fall prey to to accusations of cultural appropriation? Oh, Probably not definitely. if you're popular enough. Mm. You get away with it if you're popular enough. Oh, your you popularity think people wouldn't drop. write posts on Jezebel about it? Yeah, but who cares about that? Uh, a lot of a lot uh, of people online do. I mean, <laughs> online. This, yes. I'm not saying this is the same as David Bowie playing rock music or wearing kimonos, but that band Viet Cong had to change their name because mm. enough people were angry about it. But it's such an inchoate anger, you know, with Viet Cong. Is it that it's, it's, it's offensive to talk about this, that it's not yours to talk about, that it's not I, yours to name your band after? I mean, what I about Gang of Four? Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. That was appropriating, uh, you know, the, the leftist Maoists. It's, it's, that's not fair. They're grandfathered in. There was also, like, he, he was really inspired by vaudeville. He was uh, yeah. he went to mime school, I believe. Yeah. Is that true? Right. Yeah, there's yeah. actually good representation of his miming background a lot of talk and you know he never really was that successful as an actor but his physical acting was was definitely brilliant it yeah. probably comes from his miming experience yeah his stage presence even when i saw him like if i saw him in that tour it was probably 2003 or whatever he had to have been 60 maybe and dude he killed it on stage like he was still doing one it, thing know? i noted though is is that it's, it's kind of amazing how much how how inescapable it is that you need time to cure the awkwardness of how somewhat recent time periods seem to you. I remember growing up, being a teen and thinking the 80s was the most embarrassing moment of culture ever. Mm-hmm. And now I, I just fucking love so much about how batshit 80s aesthetics were, you know, how weird they got with, with using synth music in whatever way. Wait, how um, old are you? I am 31. But you look at Bowie in like the late 90s and early 2000s now, and maybe I won't feel this way in 10 years, but I recognize that haircut and the way... Mm-hmm. He's kind of got blonde highlights, and yeah. even his affectation on stage, it's very much of that time, um, or the way certain tracks are dancey, reminding me of, like, New Order at the time. Like, right. Yeah. 
this might have been your least cool moment, or that might just be an artifact of not enough time having passed. Yeah, that's fair. But he, I mean, he managed to stay relevant for so long, and he kept like, yeah, like all the '80s icons pretty much like were like went to shit in the '90s. Or died. Right? Like no one, no one cared. But like he managed to like survive the '90s. Isn't yeah, Madonna? I guess. Isn't he? Yeah. He's he's sort of like somebody asked the question like, could a David Bowie exist again today? And it's actually it's interesting to think about because if you think of the the folks that arose like in the '60s or the '70s, it was really like people who could ride these different waves and reinvent themselves over and over. So there's Bowie, right? He goes through all these sort of different phases um, based on the time, but also based on nostalgia and these artistic ideas he has. Uh, but then you have Dylan too, right? Dylan who like changes his styles up over and over from the you know early 60s up until the 70s. And then like he kind of sucked for a long time, but now he's back with really cool music again in his well, old age. I, I, he kind of stopped evolving at a certain point in time, though, don't you think? Well, I, I think this idea. I'm talking cra- about Dylan. Oh, Dylan went. He went into his crazy fundamentalist Christian phase, and that was really bad. But then, in the last, if you look, the last like seven, eight, nine years, he's put out some really cool like uh, roots type music, like shit that uh, you know, it's not my favorite Dylan shit, obviously. Dude. But I, I, I mean, I, I personally, I find Dylan to be interesting cultural figure and probably a good poet and his voice makes me want to like fucking shove nails I'm, in my ears i'm sorry yeah. armin i'm never going to listen just to the armin. dylan songs that you nope. email me oh. every week oh our friend armin likes to email us the weekly dylan and i always read the emails because they're very interesting and armin's a great writer but i do not listen to the and songs he also likes the grateful dead a little too much it's suspect I, I think on the question of artists reinventing themselves there's sort of the cranky old man response which is that people today just don't have the attention span but I also think another way of looking at it is that the music industry isn't as closed, top-down, and controlled anymore, where there's only so many musical figures around, and so the ones who already have fame have such a, a leg up and the opportunity to reinvent themselves. And there's probably something lost in that, being able to be the music, musical 1%. But instead of having that all across... You know, the aristocracy. Three, yeah, three different people reinventing themselves now. One percent of the musicians. <laughs> we have this incredible wealth of music, and we, we might be able to experience something much better than that across... A much larger yeah. number of people, but there is something that's quite not the same in admiring one you're, larger than life figure. Yeah, 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 actually, that's a good way to look at it because it was an industry, like a real industry, like Hollywood. You know, was an industry and made stars and made movies and directors. You're right; you don't really have that as much anymore. It was great, though. You, just, you know, it's, it's funny. Tony Visconti apparently there's a thing in the, oh, in the exhibit. Visconti, he awesome. refused of all the hits, he refused to produce um, uh, Space Oddity, and the reason why is that he thought. It, Bowie was just doing way too much of a commercial gimmick. And it's not that the song itself was too gimmicky, but that Bowie wanted to time it with the first moon landing. Mm. So Visconti refused to produce it. That's fucking brilliant. The BBC aired that song as they broadcast the moon landing, and he got his first bit of national attention. Uh, Well, I think that's that's kind of the key to what you were saying before. It was... There was a much more... Look, the whole entertainment industry was a much more consolidated, kind of almost quasi-monopolistic thing back then so you could have the you almost had this sort of uh you could have an artist like bowie who would have these like you know major like tv appearances where he could like choreograph the whole performance and like design the costumes right and and he gained leverage over his label too as being a megastar right and sort of incorporate like theater and everything like that right whereas now it's it's a lot more kind of fragmented and it's like it's it's more of a sort of an assembly line kind of thing it's like except for like write music these people make songs like or bottom up scrambling for attention right Right. pop stars still try to do the bowie thing like lady gaga Gaga. Gaga. Um, or beyonce Beyonce, uh, to some degree super bowl 
uh, Marilyn Manson ripped him off heavily mm. at a time when I really liked Marilyn Manson. You know, and this is way out of my wheelhouse. I think Beyonce. I think Beyonce is actually a really good example. Like this isn't you know obviously it's not my like hugest area of interest, but that's someone who's basically just trying to do pretty new things with the form. Like mm. releasing a surprise video album is not a thing someone had done yeah. before, let alone someone of her prominence. Yeah, shout out to Beyonce. Also, I just want like I was just thinking about this the other day because they had that room in the Bowie exhibit that was like all the 90s stuff that he did and got into and like I'm afraid of America. I really like they actually didn't even have that video that he did with Trent Reznor but they had the video Mm. that he did with the same director that directed a lot of Marilyn Manson's most iconic videos and he toured with Nine Inch Nails in like 1993, or and like, he covered Nirvana's "The Man Who Sold the World." Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> good one. It took me a second yeah. there. Well done. It was a really good Nirvana cover, and like, how many musicians that started in the '60s could you even imagine touring with Nine Inch Nails? Or well, hey, Johnny Cash covered, uh, covered uh, Nine Inch Nails, right? Wait, very, very well. Oh actually. yeah, yeah, oh, that yeah. was a really good Nine Inch Nails cover. I, I think what Cash makes did. Bowie really incredible, though, is that not that these '90s artists were particularly homophobic or anything, but not only did Bowie maintain his credibility, but he had gone all the way to the edge of pop and disco and glam, and still, you know, these brooding masculine types in rainy-ass Seattle wanted everything to do with him. Yeah, because yeah, right. he was a major influence on the music that and they liked. Them, yeah. And I think they, I mean, my first, the first time I can remember Bowie coming into my consciousness was definitely Labyrinth. Every, definitely every woman about your age, yeah. every and, woman about your age, babe, uh, no, like, that David Bowie package that he you brings know. to that movie, I think that was a lot of uh, women's uh, I mean, awakening uh, in yeah. terms of... Uh, God, my first exposure was a girl I was dating who made me watch Labyrinth. So. <laughs> that is like such a typical and a half, man right? thing to say. It was not about the package. It was about the whole the whole package. package. Exactly. <laughs> he definitely... Then, yeah, but the ahead. second exposure I had to Bowie was probably when he toured with Nine Inch Nails. Although, you know what? I was too little to be into Nine Inch Nails that year. So I probably like found out about it in retrospect. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And like how many musicians who started in the 60s could do that and work with a 90s musician in a way that didn't come off totally cheesy and desperate? And it was because he influenced Trent Reznor. And then Trent Reznor might have influenced him back a little bit. And it was like a beautiful fucking interplay. Yeah. I mean, have you heard the first Nine Inch Nails album? It was like total like synth pop. Like- oh, I've heard it. Wait, the one with had like a hole on it? Or? No, 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 before that. Oh no, I never heard that. Pretty hate no, 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 sorry, not not the, no, not the first Nine Inch. The band that the band that Trent Reznor was in before Nine Inch Nails oh. was like a total glam synth pop band. Oh, I thought he was in. Even though Pretty Hate Machine I mean, was pretty synth pop. Pretty Hate itself. Machine yeah. was to some degree a synth pop album as well. Right, like but a but dark before depressing one. yeah, before before Nin, he was totally like just in a synth pop band. Like really, if, we should look that uh, up. Whatever if that is. Spotify could Maybe pull up the songs that we have listened to the most over the course of our entire lives like even before Spotify was invented, that would definitely be in my top five. I'm sure AI people are working on that. Do you guys have Last.fm accounts? I, I have one that's been running since... I, I reset in 2006 because it got depressing how much of it was Elliot Smith. <laughs> <laughs> we were all there in 2006. It's been tracking my listening I think my MySpace account is still around somewhere. I don't know. Like It never dies. Them. Nothing ever dies. Okay, so um, unless anyone has anything else they want to say about David Bowie, we've got to keep it moving. Yeah, I just want right. to say one last thing. Like... There's a group of people, and they had a really hard time uh, in the mid-40s, you know, into the 50s, um, that, you know, I think David Bowie was guilty of uh, culturally appropriating uh, when he went and he gave that Hitler salute um, in, mm. that, in Berlin. 
Uh, I think he was really trying to, you know, appropriate Nazi culture, and that's just not cool. You know, yeah. ger- a lot of Germans, you know, they, uh, they they resented that at the time. Well, you know, maybe maybe this is uh, too far gone of a sidebar, but, you know, Never. when you're talking about cultural appropriation and trying to find the difference between appropriation and, I guess, cultural syncretism, so much of the music we like, you know, the, the mod era, uh, first wave ska, that has everything to do with post-war Britain bringing in tons of West Indian people mm. to to basically enable the country to function, and this this mixing, this actual mixing, and this interaction of real human beings between uh, Jamaican immigrants and working class British people, and it produced and laid the foundation of some of my favorite music. And it seems dumb and beside the point to talk about who took what from who, especially when you're talking about the, you know, what succeeded from it forty years later. Yeah. Okay, but on the other hand, Get it did out. also it also led to the mighty mighty Boston. So maybe... <laughs> don't don't you tar what I love with this Massachusetts third wave hey. fucking nonsense. Ever since I the impression out... that I get is that most ska is pretty good. <laughs> Ever since I found out that the trombone player Come on, from uh, guys guys. Ever since I found out that the trombone player from Real Big Fish is following us he on is. Twitter. I felt uh, much more conciliatory towards uh, Third Wave Scott. Apparently, he's like a DSA guy or whatever. Yeah, and, and as I tweeted out to all the people out there who talk shit on him when uh, we announced that he was a fan of ours, if you are be- between the age of, say, I don't know, 30 and maybe 40 years old, you could pretend you didn't have a ska phase, but you had a fucking ska phase, all right? You had creepers. They were two-tone, okay? You went to the fucking shows. You had the fucking special sticker on your car as you drove to it. So don't pretend you weren't into it. Everybody was into you it. Not to it mention, up, Real Big Fish's biggest song ever was called Sellout. It's about the agony of looking at conventional success and money versus holding on to your values. And if it's not a realer thing for DSA itself to be considering, then I don't know what it is. Wow. <laughs> we got the real big Damn. fish caucus all, over here. We could all learn something from that guy. I think. Shout out to that guy. Shout out. I hope that you are a patron. Oh, and speaking of patrons, uh, we have a very exciting announcement to make. Announce it, announce it. And that is we have officially not just reached but surpassed. We blew past. The magic number of 183 that uh, we had randomly chosen because our friend Debbie told us we needed to pick an interesting number. It's better than 200, so 183. And it's one more than Blink-182. Exactly. Oh, wow. So, we should have. We should have. And uh, it's one of the few numbers left that doesn't mean something in, like, Nazi symbology. So. <laughs> right. Not, yet, much. not yet. Not yet. So now we are... Oh. I don't know if we're going to actually work on the captions or if we should just release it because that's something I don't know how to do and I'm probably not going to. But uh, we will be releasing our world historical debut of our cooking show known as Acid Kitchen. And, and you may see a few familiar faces in it. You got me, Jamie Peck. You got uh, some of my friends who shall remain nameless at the moment. You got Nearl yep. screeching at us off camera yep. about how we're fucking up all the food. It's yep. great. He was the voice of reason at Acid Kitchen. Which he's, he's not even touching that one. <laughs> like I like the moment. I mean, there's many. There are many Easter eggs in Acid Kitchen, but uh, I should probably put some sub, or, or at least like write it out so people know what the fuck we're saying because I've watched it enough times so that I pretty much know what we're saying. But there's this one part where I turn to my friend Debbie and I'm like. I can't tell if Nerol is actually mad at us. And she's like, me neither. Oh, well. Oh, wait, Debbie's on this? <laughs> this is the tricky thing when you try to evaluate my hate at the end of the show. Uh. So speaking of uh, people we hate and things we hate, uh, our hate remains ever pure for our favorite 
hapless capitalist, Mr. Elon Musk. <laughs> if only all capitalists were so hapless, we'd be doing better right now. Yeah, there's uh, been a lot of Musk news. We covered a little Musk in episode 11, but uh, Musk just keeps throwing himself out there. So we're just going to keep uh, reeling him in like a big fish. I just love the word Musk. It's it's great. It, it's just very it's a very strong Musk. It, it yeah. is. And if his name wasn't like... He's got basically a supervillain name. He has a great you know? name for yeah. a capital supervillain. Yeah. I don't know if everyone's familiar with the Hank Scorpio episode of The Simpsons. Oh, of course. But I can, and I, I've grown up just loving that and wanting to be Hank Scorpio if I can't be a useful socialist instead. <laughs> but <laughs> really only two options. Scorpio of socialism. I'm, I'm already tipping my hand way too much on how I feel about Elon Musk. Well, well we're, we're going to get to all of uh, Nero's contrarian views on. Um, Musk and all of uh, Alex's ways that he's devised of uh, torturing the man uh, once he's finally thrown in the gulag he deserves. But for those of you who haven't uh, been following the news this week, um, Elon Musk basically out of nowhere uh, threw together some crappy little mini sub. And uh, by that, I mean, had his engineers design a, you know, jerry rigged uh, device in order to help with the rescue of these uh, Thai kids who are trapped in this cave. It's actually a pretty inspiring story, you know, what analog technology like humans in dive suits could do, you know, like swim through small crevices and and save small children. Um, And it's also a very Silicon Valley thing, like, let me act like a savior and over-engineer the shit out of something no one fucking needs. Like, Elon Musk, like a juicerode the fucking Thai (laughs) cave. (laughs) Except... At least Juicero can make fucking juice. Well, you didn't even need the the Juicero, right? You just suck it out of the bag. Is exactly, felt. which is which is, with your hand, which is exactly the whole thing. You didn't need the sub; you could right, just pop okay. the water out. Right, right, I still, get it. <laughs> the Juicero worked. All right. So, so not so he um, he. <laughs> sorry. So Elon Musk uh, juicerode himself into this whole situation, and uh, his mini sub was not wanted; it wasn't needed. And uh, I think people were like over there were grateful that he was like trying to contribute something, but they looked at this thing and they're like, "Yeah, that's just not going to work." Do you think he was just waiting for some Thai kids to get trapped in a cave to unveil this mini sub that he had designed? Do you think he like geoengineered like the flood and the disaster to? Oh, you think he controls that harp thing, or the harp yeah. thing that controls would, the weather too? I would not put it past him. The fucking chemtrails, like even if he doesn't, you know he wants to, right? He'd love to control the weather. That's the thing, right? This is the yeah. Elon Musk thing. That's why we're doing this week in Musk is because it's always fucking something with this guy. Last time he was a utopian anarchist. You know, he went through the entire political spectrum. He ended up as a you know anarchist, and this time he's like trying to save these you know. What are they? A soccer team, right? Out of a cave. He, well, he he definitely has like a, a messian- messianic savior complex about him. I think he's also a kind of socially fucking ineffectual, ardent engineer. I think he he saw a problem and just way too much fixated on what he could build. And then and then when he was told, you know, that uh, his help wasn't needed, he he apparently didn't take it that well. No, he didn't take it that well at all. In fact, um, he went somewhere. I I, I can't imagine going there myself maybe you guys have some ideas about it but uh he basically called the guy uh who is you know in charge of this uh very complex operation this or british diver this children a br- british like a british expat uh living in thailand yeah uh, he... who was the main diver involved in the rescue operation and who basically said you know at first politely said musk's contributions were interesting but ultimately not needed which is fair 
Only like a megalomaniac would be like, you asshole, you're a fucking pedophile. Right? Yeah, which is well, where Elon Musk went, which is why he's back in the news right now. He Elon him Musk. A pedo. Which is why, hey, not everyone who wants to save kids from a cave is a pedo. Okay? Not, not everyone who spends their life in Thailand searching for relatively unexplored moist holes is a pedo. <laughs> British expats in Thailand. I mean, like we, we, you know, we all we all thought it for a second, but none of us would well, make the, that accusation publicly. The Elon fanboys on Reddit were actually like, "I bet Elon had his spies look oh into this guy God. and find oh out." God, seriously. Now, now let's suppose that's true. They don't hesitate or stumble over. I bet Elon had his spies in Thailand. Like maybe he has them. He's fucking nuts. But I mean, it's pretty fair that um, he did call him a pedo, not just because he's a British expat, uh, <laughs> but because that's also just a very normal thing to throw around on the internet and double down on it. He called him pedo guy. Which Are we is pronouncing awesome. it with the British? Pro- pedo. 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 The guy did yeah. say this. British that... expat did say that Musk has no conception of what the passage was like. The submarine, I believe, was about five foot six inches long, rigid, so it wouldn't have gone around the corners or around any obstacles. So I could see it wasn't even as long as David Bowie. (laughs) Let's let's go and uh, let's see. Uh, Do you guys think that uh, which pronunciation is better, pedo or pedo? I think it's pedo. 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 Well, let's see what the experts have to say. That's an encyclopedia. No, no, but the the Brits say pedo because there was. If you guys watched the IT crowd, there was a whole episode that set around the fact that she was dating a guy named peter file and when he friends with mike it, hunt and someone and so and moss suggested that well they could you could always move to america because then the, they pronounce it pedophile and there's no problem <laughs> well well let's let the experts uh, hash this out go ahead and play the, the clip babe. you know jez i've started to get this feeling that i'm totally totally fucked you know, everything's fucked. I, I fucked my wedding. I fucked up my only ever relationship. Everything's just completely fucked. You have been feeling this for a while. But now I'm starting to think that maybe that's a good thing. Because now I can get on and do everything I've always wanted to do. Join Mensa, learn the clarinet. <laughs> I could be a scout leader. Mm-hmm. What are you smiling for? Look, scouting is a noble tradition. You do not have to be a pedo to want to work with children, right? But it probably helps. Oh, God, that is so... I spent five happy years in the Scouts and never once did... You told me Kinky Layton was all over you. Yeah, all right, Layton was a bit of a pedo, but not in a bad way. Just boosting you over the climbing wall, making you run around the camp in your pants. It was old-style pedoing, before it got such a bad name. Of course, Leighton only really had eyes for Duncan Carpenter, the doe-eyed little flirt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. That will never stop being good. uh, That is from the show Peep Show. One of the Uh, best shows. One of the best. If you haven't seen Peep Show before, you you have to just watch one and you'll watch all of them. This is, you know, this this is kind of the the most, uh, I don't know, ridiculous thing that Musk has done recently. But Musk is one of the favorite objects of the left and really everyone online to to dunk on very, very heavily. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm the minority here, so why don't I let you guys take it? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, before we move on, so he called this guy a paido in a baseless attack, and uh, now the guy is threatening to sue him. And uh, somebody retweeted this story and said, like, yeah, you can't just say whatever you want about people just because you're rich. But I think this shows that you can. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like he's got the lawyers and or the money to pay so that he actually can say whatever he wants about any person at any time. And that kind of calls back to our uh, our point in the question asking episode. I don't remember which one that was a few episodes ago where we were talking about like how to convince a libertarian that they should have better mm-hmm. politics. And one of the things is like, okay, if you believe in freedom of speech, like there are other things restricting people's freedom of speech besides the government. And like, do you really want to live in a society where the amount of freedom of speech you have is determined by how much money you have? Well, not I- even Elon believes in only the absence of negative restrictions. Two fucking weeks ago, he was pissed about a report about his company that was in Business Insider and basically tried to create Verit for uh, tech right, news yeah. <laughs> in a... In a in a publication that he, I guess, obliviously wants to call Pravda, that, was that, so that polices and enforces, uh, quote-unquote, truth in journalism. And this is how ANCAP basically becomes, you know, either fascism or Nazpolism, you know, take your pick. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Alex is uh, referring to national Bolshevism. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Uh, for we those of you who don't know, things. anarcho-capitalism. Yes, but... anarcho-capitalism. Okay. Um, but, okay, so Elon, Elon Musk is such such a fertile topic he's a messy bitch is what it is many different all over twitter yes we have many different uh ways we're going to go on this what should we do first guys should we talk about grimes should we talk about uh his dad should we talk about his uh his psychology take your pick Mm, we're gonna do all of them so actually i don't know i i think why why to you is elon musk bad he does fucking ridiculous things he embarrasses the shit out of himself. Half the reason people dunk on him isn't even because he necessarily is being that terrible at every moment, but because he fucking responds every time. And he's just so easy to get a rise out of. But That is true. On, on yeah, net, overall, like our president. Why, why is he um, kind of like, like supervillain number one right now? Well, most people in the ruling class are just kind of above us and uh, won't interact with us on Twitter and won't get mad or they won't show that they're mad when we uh, take pot shots at them. But Elon Musk is uh, very different. But that's that's almost a good thing, I would say, right? That's kind of where you're going. With it. But like, I mean, I think the reason people hate Elon Musk or the people on the left hate Elon Musk is because he he's and I mean, it, it's kind of it was Zuckerberg before this, right? It, it kind of like concurrently, I would yeah, say. Yeah, like rep- it's very, very he's very representative of like the sort, precisely the sort of like capitalist that like neoliberals try to foist on us, which is like, oh, I'm gonna solve the world's problems through through my company through capitalism innovation, through innovation. yeah through innovation and right. government subsidies ps that, right i mean that that doesn't really matter it's, it's hypocritical of us to to point at someone who's produced something and say oh it doesn't count because you have government subsidies oh, it's not hypocritical of us to point out hypocrisy in a fucking libertarian I mean, here's the thing though of every but he's not a libertarian right thought, no oh, he's, he's an anarchist <laughs> Oh, right. He's a socialist. I forgot. <laughs> right, right. Marx was a capitalist. Cause I, I mean, I, yeah, you remember that one. Yeah, that was I think good. actually of all the idiots who claim to be capitalists, he's the arch capitalist. I, I guess my question is, other than him being an arch capitalist supervillain, what do you have against him? Uh, uh, do we need anything else? I think so, because for all of these Silicon Valley fucking assholes who just because by dint of the fact they happen to have made a billion dollars 
in lighting BC on money on fire think they're the savior of the world, he actually has produced something. If capitalism is supposed to give us anything, anything at all that capitalism is supposed to do that socialism or communism can't, it's innovation. And the fact is, unlike Facebook, which is, okay, fine, it is actually a new thing, or it was a new thing, or Airbnb and Uber, which just interject intermediaries to allow a few kinds of transactions to happen more and more frequently, Musk has actually created a few things. He, if you only believe that he's an effective car salesman, he's been an incredibly effective car salesman, He's terrified the shit out of the entire auto industry and thrown them all in the course of two years to rapidly change gears towards making electric cars. And yeah, he's messianic. He thinks he's going to save the environment. But the fact is, this is one of the biggest sources of carbon output ever. His power wall and his power grid stuff and the solar roof that ever fucking works, uh, it, it actually has the possibility of basically solving the intermittency problem that creates a limit on the amount of renewable energy we can produce. So he's not quite the full useless piece of shit that most self-proclaimed capitalists are. There's Juicero, and then there's a mass-market electric car if he actually pulls it off. And even if he doesn't, he's forced the whole industry to go in that way. If we're going to want... He's a capitalist who actually acts like one. Warren mm, Buffett... Like the, an Ayn Rand-type capitalist. Well, Alice no, maybe not, capitalist. because he thinks he's doing it for the common good, which would oh, okay. fucking make Ayn Rand roll over in her grave. But he, but but, he, but he is like... Uh, he as, the, as they imagine the, the entrepreneur good. to be this heroic figure He's who absolutely the heroic and, figure. Yeah. He views himself as the heroic figure. Uh, but, you know, the most adored, cuddly capitalist in America, Warren Buffett, is a fucking mean, useless piece of shit who hasn't fucking produced a thing in his entire goddamn right. life. That ass. Yeah. He's an investor. He cobbles together assets. He provides financing when no one else will. He uses his own credibility to make that financing work better. Usually extracts pretty terrible terms for it. Uh, doesn't necessarily help the companies that he buys. He, he be- he's a believer in monopoly. And, you know, there, you guys are going to fucking murder me for this, but there, there are variants of capitalism that suck more than others and they're they're ones that that basically give none of the benefits of capitalism is supposed to and make life more immediately painful for everyone buffett's yeah, a monopolist well, musk is a guy who at least has produced a fucking thing a new thing he invented a fucking thing what's destroying the environment in the first place what got us into this predicament industrial production if you want to attribute that to capitalism fine but the fact is under any version of socialism or communism we would want there would also be mass industrial production and whether or not it's not obvious to me that that version of it would have fewer deleterious environmental effects. Um, well, I actually I went to a talk at the socialism conference, which is something I should probably talk about at some point on the show because it's very uh, on topic. I won't say brand because that's a capitalist term. Jamie became a trot. She came home a trot. Yep, <laughs> I sure did. Um, but like I went to a talk on Marxism and the environment and I heard. One of the more compelling arguments that I've heard for why we have to transition from capitalism to some form of socialism, and that is that um, under capitalism, uh, the environment has no value. Uh, Capital sees it as an infinite free gift, right? Uh, Because, you know, things only have value when people have... uh, put their labor into it like you can't quantify the value of a forest or an endangered species and they actually have given people uh like in an effort to sort of quantify the dollar amount that companies need to pay for destroying these things they did surveys where they asked people to put dollar amounts on them and a lot of the answers were like protest answers because those things just like well, you, you, get, you get things right. like willingness to pay, which is actually the basis of how the EPA values things and determines the cost-benefit analysis of doing environmental protections. But, uh, I mean, for Musk, you have this guy who's either on the cusp of, you know, blowing up his company or basically becoming one of the world's richest men by massively reducing carbon output. So it's not and that capitalism And yet he can't log off 
Yeah, no, he's a fucking idiot. He can't help himself. But I, mean, I, I, I well, will... wait to finish to finish the thing that I heard at the conference. Um, I I asked a question towards the end, which was, um, and and he had gone through, you know, how capitalism it needs to continue expanding, or everything's all fucked up. You know, I'm vastly oversimplifying this for the show, obviously. Um, and you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, which is why all the great capitalists right. want to go to space now, because that's the only way it's going to continue. But he said, I asked him, like, what is a socialist approach towards this policy wise besides, you know, long term horizon and capitalism? What's the short term goal here? Is it a Green New Deal like Jill Stein wants to make? What is it? And he said something pretty depressing. He cited a study to me that I should probably track down and look at that uh, said, yeah, of course, in the short term, Green New Deal, best option. But the amount of economic activity that would be generated by that would basically cancel out any positive effect on the environment that it would have. And that was just depressing so, as fuck. So this like Malthusian mentality is, has been tried before in the past, and it's turned out not to be true. Maybe this time it will. Maybe we probably will destroy ourselves. But, um, you know, th- this kind of gets to what is... My my reason for standing Elon Musk. Uh, I that, never pegged you that, for that, cuck, Nero. That I deserve to be <laughs> fucking made fun of for the most, which is sure. Maybe we can't have infinite growth in the way we have it now, but that comes down to this idea of what the constraints to growth are. It's this idea that we can't have more an ever increasing number of inputs. But what productivity is is the idea of creating the same or a larger amount of output with a diminishing amount of input and. These are technological breakthroughs, and for whatever vision of the future we have, we need, we probably do need technological breakthroughs, or at least the more we can increase people, maintain or increase people's standard of living by extracting less, uh, communism becomes more possible, socialism becomes more possible, or at least capitalism becomes less injurious to people. And I think we live, and this has less to do with Musk, but I think we live in a moment where we're sort of at one side of the S curve of technological development where things have slowed down and that, you know, a generation change doesn't see the world transformed in the way it did before. It gives people less hope about what's possible for the future and having this psychotic hypercapitalist actually a visionary uh, out front, at least claiming that we can massively structure how the economy works. Isn't the worst thing ever. His fucking pipe dreams. Some of them are dumb. His literal pipe dream, the boring company (laughs) is based on, Basically, nothing is proven about how we can take a tunnel faster and a horrible misconception of what public transit is and what it should do. But others of them, I think we need an idea that life can be transformed. And visionary capitalists are better than Buffett capitalists. Elon's idea of, okay, colonizing Mars is fucking stupid, but reusable rockets aren't. That was actually a, a useful thing. I, I, think I admitted we need vision and hope. I've admitted that before, to be honest with you, seeing that uh, that rocket go up and then land itself again afterwards, like that it was saves a massive amount of resources. It was, it was incredible. Um I, I mean what I what I will concede, Nero, a hundred percent, is that um we should not be judging Elon Musk any harsher than we would any other exploiter. Oh, of course. But of not. course, you know, as you said, you said that there, there there's Warren Buffett capitalist and Elon Elon Musk capitalist. Now in the, in the technological perspective that you're talking about, and I do agree with you, you know, that we need massive innovation, that we do need a complete sea change in the way that we produce, you know, not just energy, but everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, Elon Musk is as much of an exploiter as any other. But what I will concede... in some ways. If, sure. You know, the Tesla workers, I think... Uh, because are, he's one of the few of these people who actually creates a tangible product. He's got a factory floor. 
and he's got the oldest problem in the world, but he wants to do nothing innovative about how hard his fucking workers' lives are. You know, for as much as I want to stand for him, he does this stupid shit on Twitter, and that's one thing. But the fact he doesn't like the fucking color yellow and that his workers keep getting <laughs> gored is fucking unacceptable. You want yeah. to impress me. Like, yeah, convince your, if you want to convince your workers not to unionize, make their lives so good they don't care. But you haven't gotten fucking close to that. He's no right. Ford, that's for sure. It's no Fordism. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, this, this is what I was kind of trying to say before, that, which is that I think part of the reason that the left sort of has, like, a hate hard-on for Elon Musk is... In a certain way, he's like both appropriating and bastardizing some of their ideas because it's supposed to be it's supposed to be our idea of like creating a vision for a better world that's sort of yeah. collectively managed and like a positive vision of the future. And the idea and, that a capitalist can do it is threatening a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, and of course, the the other fact is that what it should be is that you know, I mean, the other problem is entrusting all that power to just one individual or one corporation of Absolutely, like yeah. deciding what you know, the future of our public transit and our energy should be like, and, but I, I would say that's actually the value of Elon Musk because he brings up, he brings up these questions of like, okay, we need to totally re-envision how we think about public transit. We need to totally re-envision how we think about energy. But you know, when he's saying it, he, he says we, and he means, he means me, Elon's right. sole yeah. vision. Yeah. And right. Sometimes it works. What he's done for Australia's power grid is amazing. What he's going to do for Chicago's public transit is going to be fucking useless. Let, let, okay. Let's stop right now with the he. OK, because, again, you know, when we look at things, uh, you know, in the in the grander scheme of things. Right. Elon Musk is not in there with a computer, you know, doing all the calculations himself right. under capitalism, under any social system. There is collective social labor that makes these things happen. Absolutely. Now, and and I don't, Nero, I don't think you would disagree with that. Right. But not at all. your your argument is basically that as his visionary, he is leading he's you know, this group of people. I'm not saying he's entitled yeah. to his wealth or that he should be allowed to act the way he does. Well, I. Uh, but, you know, there, there is a, a thing on the left that, that's, you know, like the you didn't build that. You know, the thing Obama said towards Musk as well, that it's his factory workers who have built it, which is absolutely true. And the engineers who designed and the, it. And the engineers who designed it. But it's also probably some amount of his input. You know, sure. he's probably a smart engineer. Uh, kitty, underwater kitty coffin aside. No, when I read, because uh, I, I did some research on him, when I read about him, uh, it did say that he was actually building uh, mini rockets as like a 12-year-old. You know, he was one of these real nerdy nerd. kids. Yeah, nerd well, alert. For him. His fucking well, insane upbringing. Yeah. But what... Speaking of uh, nerd alert, um, I think I read something about his childhood that makes me think about a general thesis I have about these uh, technocratic nerd kings we have now and why I find them so objectionable. And... Uh, can I just read a little bit of this to you guys? Go for it. So um, in an article headed, Elon Musk wants to change how and where humans live. Musk, who went to school in Pretoria, says that the bullying was so bad that there was even one occasion where he had to be admitted to hospital after being beaten up. He's quoted as saying, South Africa was quite a violent place. There was a level of violence growing up that wouldn't be tolerated in any American school. <laughs> it was like Lord of the Flies. So now setting wow. aside for a moment the fact that that's the worst violence that he thinks was happening in apartheid South Africa, mm -hmm. um, which actually we're not going to set it aside. I'm pretty sure we're going to fucking talk oh, about we're it. We're going to talk about <laughs> it, right? But like the idea that someone could be bullied and then grow up to become an exploiter and then react very badly when he's consistently mocked and or just covered by journalists in the media um, it really speaks to this unique psychology of our new nerd. technocratic rulers. Exactly. Because after being bullied, he then gained this mentality 
that he has not yet lost, that he is forever the underdog, and he couldn't possibly be the oppressor. So when somebody covers the things that he's doing, even if they are quite exploitative, he still feels like the victim in all that. Like when he said, oh, billionaire has become a slur. Like he I, actually I think you're dead believes right, that he acts like a, a hurt kid with a, a victim complex. Like it reminded me of the time that I met Skrillex, actually. Oh, shit. Oh, Another shit. meeting. Go ahead. At, What's uh, this story? At South by Southwest one year, I was doing my, you know, gonzo journalism thing. And uh, I met Skrillex backstage at a party that he was playing. I think it was a Fool's Gold, Fool's Gold sh- Showcase or something. And he's about five foot four, so he's about level with me. He's a little manlet. He's eyeball to eyeball with me, you know, just like his little brown eyes peering directly into mine. And uh, I told him I was writing about the show for uh, MTV Hive. And uh, R.I.P. And like, you know, our interview would be or not interview, but like our conversation would be on the record. And all of a sudden he just looks so scared and he's like, you're not going to write me stuff about me, are you? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And no. And he just launches into this thing about how, like, you don't even understand what it's like to have people all over the world who don't even know you. So you mean stuff about your music all the time. And it's just really it's really not cool. Oh, but the first thing he said to me. Or maybe it was the second. I don't know. The two things he said to me were basically he doesn't care what anybody says about him. But also many of the things people say about him are extremely mean and unfair. (laughs) And like, dude, he's got like five Grammys for his like horrible shit. What what do you think his guarantee is for one night of DJing? Twenty, thirty thousand dollars? Like he probably and like he's actually a worse example than Elon Musk. Right. Because he's not actually a capitalist exploiter. He's just a very very highly compensated member of the working class but like yeah, he has this bourgeois. eternal underdog uh psychology a lot of a lot of people never who go are away. hyper successful in capital society see themselves as underdogs uh that's why you don't really see the children of privilege making it yeah. quite that far well but, it's like i got bullied in school and i use that as inspiration to fight bullies wherever i see them and some people just use as that do as they, but inspiration elon's, to become the bully elon's bully is ford and gm in his mind and uh, and this is this is exactly, yeah, I mean, I guess so. But also it's everyone saying, p- taking pot shots at him on Twitter. And like, this is literally why we don't have Gawker anymore. Like, oh, yeah. they consistently yeah. I mean, mocked and talked shit on Peter Thiel. And they also, genuinely evil nerd. A oh, yeah. genuinely evil nerd. Well, actually, and way worse also, than Elon Musk. Worse. They also did something much less defensible, which was to out him against his will, which was controversial and still is. Like, I don't know how Should many be. people are on Gawker's side about that. So they gave him a fucking reason to single-handedly execute their website, which most of these assholes could do. Like, if you write a story about Mark Zuckerberg that he doesn't like, like, Facebook has the power to unilaterally execute any media outlet that they want just by choking off. The Onion's been on a pretty big crusade against uh, Zuckerberg lately. Well, for for the... Who has? Is it the Onion? Like they just they just po- like kept publishing like a string of uh, posts like making fun of Mark Zuckerberg. They're cruising uh, for a bruising. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, that go makes... back to the story because I'm not sure all the listeners know about the Gawker thing. Like, oh what did God. Peter Thiel do? That okay. So Peter Thiel, he said, uh, so Gawker did something pretty controversial when they published a sex tape that they had been leaked of Hulk Hogan sleeping with his friend's wife. And uh, I guess they said it was newsworthy because he'd gone on TV or on the radio and said that he did not sleep with Bubba the Love Sponge's wife. So there was, like, news value in that. They released it. 
Um, and then there was this very well-funded lawsuit that Hulk Hogan was filing against them. How was that funded? And uh, eventually it came out. Peter Thiel himself actually came out with it in a New York Times op-ed and said that he was funding it because Gawker outed him against his will and have said a lot of mean things about a lot of friends of his and therefore they deserve to not exist anymore. Which, which brings us back to your point that you made earlier, which is uh, free speech isn't an, actually an absolute right, nor do all of us have the same amount of it because Peter Thiel, you know, Thiel, Thiel, whatever. Thiel, um, I think. Thiel, he can, he can shut you down. He's got the yeah. money to buy your, well, destroy your company through lawsuits. Uh, so, and the d- further capitalism progresses, the more true that's going to be. The more the money and power is concentrated in the hands of these few fucking people. And these ones, like, they're not even cool. Like the old <laughs> ruling class, they did all kinds of they, cool they shit. They knew with, how to party. With their surplus value. Yeah, these oysters. Ones, and they, they built follies like, on their land. Just like, follies. <laughs> Literally a fucking thing you build on your estate that you know is useless just because you can. I don't even know what that like is. Like David Bowie on a coke binge. Carnegie had some wild ideas on how to raise. Well, like, There's one British aristocrat who built an underwater ballroom and smoking room. You have to get on the stairs wow. underneath the fake lake that he made. Oh, they yeah, had, where's uh, your smoking room? They had garden you? hermits. They would like literally just pay a vagrant to uh, dress in like medieval oh clothing God. and live on their property and like dispense <laughs> wow. our, dispense vague wisdom to like anyone who wandered past. That could be uh, my I, backup plan if uh, <laughs> the podcast and media world it doesn't work out for me or for anyone. But um, I, I well, kind of did that for a tech bro friend for like a good six months wow, in California. Nice. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wait, I mean, wait, ta- wait. What's, what's the deal with that? I want to know us, so much us, more about more, this. Tell us more. <laughs> well, no, I, I, no, it was it was kind of I was living in his like backyard house on his like weed farm is this like tech bro entourage gone yeah <laughs> um and it was just you know i had free housing in exchange for being the you know sort of you know i'd help him out on the farm and otherwise i was just living on her- as a hermit on his uh, little wow house. dispensing gnomic gnomic wisdom yeah <laughs> well i do that all the time anyway uh so might as well get paid for it yeah wow. if any tech bros for some reason are listening to this and they need some like cool communist friends to come <laughs> like live in their pool house and dispense communist wisdom like we might be might be able to be arranged but uh the point that i was making about these people is that like they are the new center of power and th- like i'm not the only person who's made this point i'm sure Gawker made this point as well but they are the new center of power in the world and especially in this country and they still do not see themselves as the ruling class they still see themselves right. as some kind of underdog so when the media covers them like we cover any kind of power, any center of power, any any people who are having power over the rest of us. They take it as a personal slight. They don't see that that's just like the essential check. They have flashbacks to getting wedged. Yeah, you know, and they locker. don't just want to be powerful. They want to be popular. Mm. And they're starting to realize that money can't buy that. So, well, apparently, though, it can get you uh, Grimes, who I'm not saying I thought I was going to end up with Grimes. All right. It'd be ridiculous if I expected for many years Absurd. that I was going to end up with Grimes. That would Literally. be unreasonable. And yet it's seemingly got on that. But to, to go back to what we were saying about Musk before, you know, I don't I don't think that or at least I'm not saying that I think it's fine that he's a billionaire with this much power to 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 swing in whatever direction he wants, though, pretty fucking ineffectually because of the way he goes about it. But I think it's interesting that, you know, we our target for the capitalist most worth dunking on isn't Lloyd Blankfein or mm. Jamie Dimon or Warren Buffett, 
but it's this guy just because he makes himself most visible and he makes himself most irritate. He is most irritating. And the, the thing is, this this goes to a deficit not just in the media, but in the left as well in in terms of analyzing production. When it comes down to it, when it comes to imagining what socialist future we want to have exist, there's a hard question you have to answer about how things get made. And to not be able to differentiate between a billionaire who makes something and a billionaire who just fucking steals by lobbying mm. is, is a major problem. I... I was really thrown by your your stand for Elon Musk. I thought you were going to go a completely different direction. Like I was trying. What do you to, think uh, I was going to do? No, I actually I was playing devil's advocate in my own head. Yeah. And uh, because you know I'm a history nerd, <laughs> nerd alert. I uh, I went back to uh, other great infrastructure projects of you know the 19th century. So space was a place that we went. You know, with massive government intervention with NASA, right? The completely uh, a state run Yeah, state run operation. Um, and then after the impetus for that, which was essentially, you know, Cold War dick swinging went away, you know, we basically just kind of gave up on these dreams, right? These incredible visions of going to the moon again or building a colony there or to go to Mars or even farther. And the idea we could radically transform life. Yes. Thank you. Right. That, that went, you know, by the, by the mid-70s, that went by the wayside. Not that, you know, innovation stopped obviously satellites geopositioning all this continued but where i thought you were going to go with it was like the early railroads all right as an example which is was a revolutionary uh innovation right the ability to move from one place to another uh in a direct line and very very quickly revolutionized uh not just you know the economy but also people's lives so i thought the argument that you were going to make which might actually be plausible is that under Within the capitalist system that we live in, right, if you're going to have massive um, investments in things, it's going to come ultimately from capital, either in the form of taxes or in the form of private enterprise. Mm -hmm. So when the railroads came about, it was basically a government grant. The technology existed. The government gave a grant to these railroads to run these trunk lines you know, all over the United States of America, gave the massive amounts of land not just for, to run the, the uh, actual tracks over, but on both sides of the tracks, uh, which they then sold at a profit for speculation as towns. To finance the, the rest of the construction costs. And creates this huge bubble. You know, They over-invest uh, in the railroads. And then, of course, as time goes on, you know, you don't need as many trunk lines and then eventually by the 50s 60s almost all of them are out of business the unprofitable bits comes, fall back to the state if they're left open at all and then it become it comes back into the purview of the state with what we have now is amtrak right so i thought the argument you're going to make which is you know it could be compelling uh would be that you know let the capitalists like futz around and like fuck around in space for a while and like you know throw all their capital at these very innovative, crazy ideas like, uh, let's fly a Tesla car into outer space. Let or, them try you know. their moonshots. Yeah. And if one of them pans out. Socialize Although for the most part, those, you know, fuck profitability, uh, let's just see what we can produce. That kind of R&D has almost always come from the state. It's the state abdicated from it for a long time, and now concentration of wealth has gotten so out of hand. Jeff Bezos, because his workers are already so well paid, can only think of going to space as his main goal. Now there's enough capital pool there to do it. There's no reason for this to be, you know, solely private. But yeah, I... wait, that was sarcasm, right? It's hard to tell sometimes with Nero. Well, I mean, that, that's a there's a general like sort of crisis that capital has right now, which is like there's there's so much concentrated wealth, and yet there's so much like there's so little like clearly profitable mm -hmm. investment. That... And by the way, the main capitalist argument for allowing these people to retain their wealth is that the fact that they've already earned it proves that they're the best allocators of it. Right. Clearly. 
But yeah, what were you saying? Right. Well, like, yeah, that's why they're literally like throwing their money at. That's how you get Juicero. That's how you get stuff like Juicero. Like literally, like because there's no. We're past the era of like very clear like profitable investments like railroads and infrastructure and like even like or, mi- even yeah. mining. Well, well, you know, in, in this equilibrium, ideas. we're totally past it. I mean, the non-obvious idea is probably the next revolutionary one, but. There's an there's an econ writer I really like who I guess is nominally capitalist. He he goes by Interfluidity. It's interfluidity.com. But he has this line that's like uh, Interfluidity is really big in Silicon Valley too. They have some crazy parties. Yeah, I bet. Um, you know, there's this line that necessity is the mother of invention, and he always says purchasing power weight and necessity is the mother of invention. We have an economy where you know there probably are things you could invent and build and revolutionize life, but we don't have an economy where anyone can afford to buy them. So why bother? Well, right, exactly. I was going to say before, um, all of the obvious tech ideas have been taken now, such as uh, PayPal, you know, process your payments online, such where, as... Where Teal and Musk both got their money from. Yeah, all, all of the uh, the obvious ways to disrupt, quote-unquote disrupt certain industries, a.k.a. get around unions and labor laws. Mm. Those or have or been just be taken. a new intermediary. Those have been thought of. Well, it's a replacement for the medallion yeah, exactly. in New York City, right? But, yeah, Which, but the medallion itself was like it was not any better. Pulse, no, right? and yeah. they go for like millions of dollars now right. because they well, were not commodity. Anymore. Well, they did yeah. before Uber came in. But I think that what, what we're kind of getting at is that there is some sort of fundamental way in which um, these sort of disruptions or innovations make sense. And I'll take Airbnb for an exa- as an example of a way that you have a quote-unquote innovation. It's this app you use, and you can you know stay in people's houses when they're not there or use their extra room. It lets it us solves, maximize re- thank you. use of resources. It solves, yeah. a, it solves a real issue, yeah, right? right? Which is you know, and an issue that is dealt with individually on Airbnb when you go and you pay money to somebody else in order to you know rent out their house when they're not using it. However, if you manage manage ugh, imagine that to be socialized or communized, right? Like, it makes perfect sense. You can imagine an app where, like, there is a finite amount of houses or housing, but that's way more than any one person needs right. at a given amount of time. Yeah, I, so, like, it's using... These it's, platforms could be immensely useful oh. to a state that actually Yeah, that, that, that's what I mean. Right. Like, the, 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 the line, the left line on, like, Airbnb and Uber shouldn't be like, no, these are bad. We should go back to, like, the regulated hotels and taxi companies because <laughs> yeah, those are good. Yeah, I really want right. the walled right. up like, story to pull in Yeah, no, it should like, be, like, <laughs> it's the, the technology and concept is good. What we need to do is not have, like, this be controlled by, like, a proprietary company right. that just, like, with a profit mode, not have a situation where people have to rent out their rooms to strangers because they can't right. afford the rent. <laughs> right. That's the flip side. The Airbnb on rent is so injurious yeah. because we haven't socialized any housing. Right, so exactly. Everyone's the vagaries of the rental market. Th- this well, is the problem. When you call com- these things disruption, I, I do, like, this is the last fucking thing I'll say about it, I promise. I think there is a distinction to be drawn between innovation as a new way to be an intermediary, even if it does free up uh, or, or enable the better usage of existing capacity and making a new thing. And I think an electric car is a kind of disruption that we needed. It's long fucking overdue and, you know, not not totally worth, worth casting oh, aside yeah. as just another Silicon Valley piece of shit like the Juicero. It's going to be very useful once we nationalize his company. So thank you. Or just you. communize thank it. Thank you, Elon you know, Skip over the nation state part of it and just communize that shit. But what but, I was going to say before I was interrupted by three men was... Oh, yeah. uh, you erased your voice. We're well, sorry. actually... 
that they uh god i lost my train of thought <laughs> it worked Fuck alex you. good job no so, so uh they're we'll get her to shut up oh eventually my god. i feel like i'm back at work you guys oh shit that's no good uh no so they're running out of ideas now of things that are useful or needed or obvious to the point where uh, I believe Neural and I had an experience with one of these new apps on a recent trip to Hudson. You remember? You remember that? Memory and trips to Hudson don't really line up. Uh, well, if you recall, or perhaps you don't, uh, we rented an Airbnb in Hudson. It was very nice, uh, old building, uh, a but- vacation home that was fallow the rest of the time. Right. Yeah, but the way that we were supposed to open the door was through an app called. Kivo. Kivo. It's like the juicer of doorknobs. I never heard this story. This is incredible. They disrupted doorknobs. So, um, it's an app that, yeah. Not necessary. So, you use your phone to unlock the door via Bluetooth. Oh, my God. Only Bluetooth never once worked on my old phone and probably doesn't work on my new one or maybe i just can't figure it out i don't know and if I your was... battery's dead then yeah right. my battery was i mean as happens at a music festival my battery is pretty low also i've been locked out of my house for three days because i can't find a phone charger also we were there for a 24-hour drone festival so as you can imagine we were coming home at a pretty late hour in the night fairly intoxicated so we we got it to work once we got it to open the door at the very beginning, and then we couldn't get it to work after that. So we just left the door unlocked. Like, that was our solution to you it. a house on that trip? <laughs> <laughs> and we were all talking about it, and we're like, you know what technology really doesn't need to be disrupted? A fucking key. Like, it is the alligator of technology <laughs> in that it has not evolved since the very beginning pretty much because it's fucking perfect well, doesn't oh, this, I didn't know that about alligators go back to what, what Alex was saying though about uh, uh, alligators are perfect capital versus like meaningful life improving investment opportunities and alligators probably aren't that well adapted because they only exist in the American Southeast and one little tiny pocket of China where there's like 200 of them left wait maybe I have it confused crocodiles. with the crocodile there's, there's it's an animal that hasn't evolved for like a thousand years yeah. okay? a cockroach We'll, we'll we'll put it in the blog post. It's I like thought perfect, it was an like alligator, but it might be the crocodile. You fucking know it all, mansplainer. <laughs> well, I don't think that we can finish out this Elon Musk uh, situation without getting at the elephant <laughs> of elephant in the room, the cockroach or the alligator in the room, which is that um, for all the stories you hear about Elon Musk, he happens to be from a place called South Africa. And uh, in research for this show, I perused the World Wide Web, which was, a, I think, a very good innovation. By the all, state. Yes, right. Uh, but then DARPA. By Al Gore. privatized, of course, by Al Gore. All, all hail. <laughs> all hail. Make, Ameri- Al. make America gory again. Wait, what's 88 for Al Gore? <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to uh, you know Elon Musk's background, right, because he was born in 1970 in uh, South Africa, it's very, very difficult to find online any mention whatsoever of the conditions he grew up under, which, if people know their history, uh, was the condition of apartheid, which was explicit racial segregation, uh, a small white ruling class of uh, 8% of the population, uh, not only ruling over in a state, uh, in 
ruling over the state, uh, but of course being the chief capitalists and uh, exploiters within South Africa at that time. So when, you know, Elon Musk says South Africa was quite a violent place, there was a level of violence growing up that wouldn't be tolerated in any American school. It was like Lord of the Flies. You have to wonder how he is so myopic at this point in time to not see the larger or remember the larger violence that was happening in South Africa. Right. And, and I think this ties into like uh, what we were saying before about how all these sort of nerds uh, see themselves as victims, even once they've grown up to be capitalists, uh, which is kind of reminiscent of, you know, when apartheid finally ended, uh, when South Africa like was dragged sort of kicking and screaming to like end apartheid, a lot of the white um, you know, the white community that had previously been the ruling class saw themselves as victims and as this oppressed minority within the new South Africa. And I mean, while Elon Musk hasn't publicly made statements to that effect, it's hard sort of not to see the kind of parallel there. Oh, yeah, you mean, I mean like when he says that billionaire is a slur? I, I mean, like, <laughs> it, it's, like it's, it's actually hard to know what his take on South Africa is. Obviously, they're a place that's very eager to claim him and he wants... He seems to want to have nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, because, you fair. know... Um... He, he, he left in the late 80s when he was 17 to maybe to avoid military service or maybe just because he saw no potential for himself there, which is another way for some of the whites he left at the same time as saying that if, if the tide is going to turn, I don't want to be here. I, I don't know if I want to attribute that to him. There's a, a Rolling Stone interview with him that I, that I really love, actually. I think it's really humanizing, and they bring up his father, and he starts crying. And, you know, among the things that his father did, one of... The, one of them that's vaguely referenced there is his father once murdered three people that came onto their property. Um, his father also Whoa. married Elon's stepsister. Jesus. Uh, and his father was, uh, among other things, an engineer who worked at mines and owned shares in Emerald Mine. Actually, some of probably Elon's first uh, seed capital, so to speak, would be uh, emeralds he stole from his father and stole <laughs> and sold to a jewelry store in New York, I think. I respect Where that. were those mines? Were they um, in, uh, in Zimbabwe? Oh, Angola, actually. you mean? Or uh, I think I think the emerald mine in this case was in Zimbabwe. Oh, Rhodesia. Uh, maybe maybe Rhodesia. <laughs> probably not Biafra. Um, <laughs> That's a joke, folks, because Rhodesia was actually what they called white apartheid uh, Zimbabwe before it was freed by independence fighters. But sorry. Yeah. So um, you know, like. Musk, you know, I, I don't, I don't know whether he's, I, I don't need to call him a racist. I do think it's, it's kind of interesting though that he probably was so personally affected, and to give him all the credit in the world, maybe horrified by what he saw, and yet, and yet he can so easily still fall back on this I, idea of himself as an oppressed person. Um, the, the other thing in the interview that uh, makes him cry is that he is just heartbroken. His last relationship has failed, and he's crestfallen over it, and doesn't really see. Uh, a purpose in life really without uh, a meaningful partner to have. I feel like I've dumped on Grimes before on the show and uh, I feel kind of bad about it. Uh, I just want to like emphasize that, um, you know, when, when Matt Lex says that she's white girl Kanye, there are two sides to that coin because yeah, she's uh, really dumb about most things. Uh, I felt her politics were always very shallow the way she would, at least as I understood them from what she would write on Tumblr. But she is also a brilliant producer and songwriter, and I will probably be listening to her music for a very long time. Uh, if she does a Bowie and stays relevant, if uh, dating Elon Musk does not ruin her career amongst the uh, social justice warriors out there. That I, is... I hold out hope for her future and, and, and our future. Mm, well... Just as a show of good faith to Grimes, 
maybe I'll uh, sing one of her songs right now. Really? You you would do that on the show? You would you would you would do a karaoke rendition of Grimes just for us? Don't make me sing. Sing for your supper, baby. I think if you're going to do it at all, though, I think you should sort of emote emote how this might have possibly changed her. You know, mm. have time with Elon. A muskier Grimes, I guess, is what I'm asking for. <laughs> Musky Grimes. That right. sounds so sensual. I'll do my best. <laughs> Three of us doing back 